Today, can art be separated from the artist? Should art be separated from the artist? And what do thinkers like Hannah Arendt, Hans-Georg Gadamer, Martin Heidegger and Roland Barthes say about this? I'm Kieran O'Meara and you're listening to The Pollitt Podcast. One of the more recent characteristics of the modern age is the effect that social media has had on public discourse and opinion. Politically, social media has had an effect beyond that which could have been imagined. This we can see clearly in a global political context through events such as the Arab Spring, the Occupy movement, or even the focal positions social media has held throughout inquiries into data harvesting. We truly believe that it's safe to say that social media now constructs our social discourse in the material world, as we equally construct the discourse within it in the digital world. Even the language that we use on social media has begun to drip slowly into the material world, posited in terms such as to say that something is trending, for example. Of all the topics trending for some time, one really highlights the effect that social media as a whole can have on our social discourse in the wider world. In early 2019, the documentary Leaving Neverland aired publicly on television, exposing Michael Jackson, the musician, as a potential sex offender and child molester. Although the documentary centres itself around the testimony of two individuals who provide a graphic and vivid recollection of their time with Mr Jackson as children, the social media backlash divided the public as to whether or not Mr Jackson's accusers are A. recording a truthful account or B. justified in accusing a deceased superstar of such a crime, accusations he is of course unable to refute. Now, despite that he cannot defend himself, it appeared as if the spectre of Mr. Jackson lingered over the defence offered by his devout online fan base. Such a rigorous rejection of the claims made in the documentary went as far, in some cases, as to slander the two men and their testimonies, or funding a public campaign on London buses directing onlookers to the online platforms of the hashtag MJ's Innocent campaign. As far as this particular debate is concerned, I'm certain that the passage of time will reveal the truth as to the deeply secretive sexual escapades of Mr. Jackson, be they innocent or otherwise. The more interesting phenomenon at play here, however, occurred in the response to the topic becoming popular online conversation. By this, I'm talking about those increasingly contemplative queries that arose out of, and antecedent to, the public discourse that unfolded on social media in the days and weeks after the documentary aired. One of these specifically became a popular topic after its appearance in the online realm. Namely, this concerned the extent to which art can be separated from the artist, a question that has for a long time haunted aesthetic thinkers. The following is a series of thoughts concerning precisely this notion, the extent to which art can be separated from the artist. This week, most commentary on the subject discussing the intricacies of such a question have been lost to a journalistic impulse, and the philosophical discussion concerning the matter requires some training to get to the centre of its grasp, and as such erodes a public understanding. 
Today, this piece shall attempt to discuss this question on a plane of thought that is relevant and can be understood by the many. Although the journalistic work on the matter tends to present a clear answer to the question, there is little appreciation for what is at stake in the character of an answer. Irrespective of whatever the answer is, whether art can or cannot be separated from the artist, what is at stake is our capacity to interpret and understand the output of human creativity itself, and the extent to which it remains anchored to its creator, or becomes an entity in and of itself. Although this topic will remain unchanged, the purpose of this piece over two episodes will be to sketch out a number of thoughts concerning the extent to which art can, or cannot, be separated from the artist, before presenting an answer to the question at hand with some concluding thoughts. Before we can even begin to address the question of art's separability from the artist, it must first be addressed what the nature of art itself is, and then after this the relationship between art and the artist. This particular essay has been taken from an article on the website written by Cameron Maltwood and Kieran O'Meara. However, it's time to begin with the proximity of art and the artist. The proximity of art and artist. First relation, creator slash creation. Art is not like dust or diamonds. It does not merely come into natural being, found lying on the floor or having to be tediously mined for. Art must be created. Creation stipulates that the objects of the natural world are taken from their organic setting, treated in some manner and acted upon to create something anew. Think of a beautifully carved chair. Wood has to be sourced, chopped into timber, and then fashioned by the labourer into a new object of human artifice. As a creation, art is therefore firstly created out of naturally existing substances at the material origin of the artistic object, be it wood, water, earth, clay, whatever, and therefore this means that secondly, art is not natural an example of human artifice. As the output of labour, Art is dragged into the world by an artist, and in this way from the moment of the first brushstroke, written word, chisel strike or line recited, the art begins to exist in the world between humans. In this sense, we're already beginning to see a separation between the artist and their creative output. The artist is subject, and they create art as an object to be engaged with by their fellow community of humans. What of the nature of art in itself, however? If art is merely creation, does this postulate reduce any distinction between a Van Gogh and a plastic water bottle produced a thousand times an hour by machine, if creation is merely the thing that defines art? In 1917, the now famous artist Marcel Duchamp submitted a sculpture to an exhibition of the Society of Independent Artists in New York. Playing on the very nature of the essence of art as creation, Duchamp's sculpture was in fact a wall urinal, turned upside down, signed R. Mutt 1917, and entitled Fountain. In this moment, Duchamp affirmed that even the ugliest of human functional creations is still precisely this, a creation, and as such is art. 
This art may be produced by machine in its millions, performed to millions, or holding a practical and instrumental function, but this means that nonetheless such creation is art. Interestingly, at a time of mass society, mass industrialization, and consequently mass politics, Duchamp was not alone in deducing that the mechanization of production removes very little from the essence of human creation as art. Georges Sorel, in his Reflections on Violence, translates Duchamp's artistic rebellion onto a revolutionary plane of syndicalist political action. Here, by utilising the philosophy of Henri Bergson, Sorel indicates the same notion as Duchamp but begins from a different vantage point, namely class politics. Sorel affirms that art is, quote, the anticipation of the highest form of production, end quote, and through such a connection between artistic creativity and production, the proletariat resemble either a artisans reproducing creative work based upon the model of another's innovation, or b artists who innovate as those, quote, who exhausts himself in the pursuit of the realisation of ends that ordinary people generally regard as absurd, and who, if he has made an important discovery, is often thought to be mad, end quote. In this manner, therefore, Sorel associates the artist with the inventor, the trailblazer of production, and art as the product of their labour. If we take the perspective offered by Duchamp and Sorel to its total extent, we can see that there is no difference between a Van Gogh, Picasso, Bruegel or Turner and a big ballpoint pen, a water bottle, a roll of toilet paper or a computer. They are all art as they are all created. What connects them all is that they are produced by artisans and inventors alike, all creating the objects which furnish the world between us as humans. And it is this very furniture that we consider to be art. As interesting a curious social metaphysics of production as this is, there is a quality which does not appear in the objects and output of modern production and yet appear in the works of all artists, from Andy Warhol to Augusta Buell, from Tarantino to Frederick Chopin. This mysterious characteristic is a lack of function. A ballpoint pen is created to write with, a water bottle is created to hold water, what function does a surrealist work by Dali have, or an aria by Chopin? In her 1958 work The Human Condition, the noted political thinker Hannah Arendt discusses the lack of instrumental function that art intrinsically possesses at some depth as the distinguishing factor between the works of art and the other durable things of the human artifice. In this, Arendt stipulates three qualities that characterise art. Firstly, its uselessness. Secondly, its durability. And thirdly, the centrality of thought. The first quality that Arendt draws attention to is the uselessness of art. Art is unlike any other object precisely as it is not used. The claim of uselessness of art objects is not to propose that art holds no place in the human artifice, but rather that it holds a peculiar position. Unlike other objects created by humans, art is not created with an inherent instrumental function. 
A canvas panel, for example, is created for a purpose, to be painted on. Oil paint is created for a purpose, to be applied. Nonetheless, the canvas with paint applied has no purpose beyond itself, or rather, it has no preordained instrumental function like the canvas and paint independently of their union. If we think of the objects in the human artifice like cogs within a clock, each providing some small function in correctly keeping and displaying the time of day, works of art stand independent of these micro-functions, lacking a specific cog-like instrumentality. Some, indeed, may argue that work has a purpose, to be sensed somehow. Nonetheless, this is not preordained in the way that the function of a water bottle is. Art is created for itself, no more, no less. The second quality that Arendt discusses is the notion of art's durability. As art holds no inherent instrumental function, it's not worn by utilisation. Even if we prescribe the purpose of art to be that it's sensed, which quite frankly still falls short of a clear instrumental function, a painting, performance, work of literature, etc. does not fade by being sensed. With the passage of time and consequent use, objects created with a function engage in a constant process of self-erosion. As Arendt stipulates, the actualization of the function of a chair it's being sat on lends ultimately to its destruction with the passage of time. Precisely as art is not strictly utilised like other objects, it does not undergo this process of actualised erosion. In this sense, Arendt argues that art is the most durable of man-made objects. Its permanence is ensured through the fact that its actualization does not lead to its destruction in usage. For this reason, where we produce disposable objects in our era of mass society, the artist holds a position of some importance as the creator of cultural and durable objects, forging the space between peoples across space and time. Of course, this is not to say that the work of art is itself materially permanent. To make such a claim would be to ignore the temporality of all objects in the world itself. An essential part of the human condition is that we exist in a temporal world. Everything becomes dust and worm feed in the end. Nonetheless, this being said, a priceless portrait may be destroyed by mould. A performance of theatre, music or dance may exist only in the moment, but it's not by its utility that it ceases to be. It is by the law of temporality which governs everything in our world. In this manner, art is distinct from all other objects in the human artifice precisely as its durability becomes a central characteristic. Only in the nature of the temporality of all things can cause its destruction. The final quality that Arendt associates with art is the centrality of thought at its inception. All objects require to be thought into existence. In order to create a chair, for instance, one has to contemplate its design, material construction, assemblage, and so on. At the outcome of this process of contemplation is the leap from pure thought to praxis, translating thought into action. 
objects of the human artifice do not just simply pop into being out of thin air, but are first discussed in the silent dialogue between one and oneself. As a result of this discussion, one begins to act. The human artifice is particular to the natural realm in that it is comprised of natural materials, but these have been tampered and tempered in accordance to the rationality and praxis of some individual. In this vein, Arendt claims that the work of art stands in no opposition to other objects of the human artifice, as it too is also the outcome of some process of thought, dragged into being through the interconnectedness between contemplation and action. Nonetheless, although the third quality of the work of art is shared with any other object made by humans, it comes into its own when placed against the notions of uselessness and durability. Ultimately, a joy of total, unadulterated human potential is broken open in the tension between these first two qualities. And the third. Arendt's tripartite characterization of the work of art shows that although all objects of the human artifice are past thought, reified through the action of creation and construction, the work of art's lack of functional utility and durability reaffirms that the thought which brought it into being is not concerned with needs, but something more complex. This brings us to our second point. If art is created, this means that its origin rests with a creator. The notion that the work of art is brought into existence through the mental capacity of contemplation, like any other man-made object, by this logic means that the art forms through the consciousness of a subject, i.e. the artist. Using Arendt's three qualities of art, we can discern three key particular stages of life for work of art. First, contemplation. Second, reification. And third, immortalization. The artist is concerned primarily with the first two, i.e. the coming into being of thought and its reification into an object. In such a manner, this is what has led many devout and often dogmatic theologians to declare that we are the almighty God's greatest masterpiece, as he created us ex nihilo and a posit of his grace and very being rests within us, created, quote, in his image. Perhaps this is why some theologians prefer to state that God, of any and all persuasions, did not create us with a functional purpose, as this would rescind the position of the universe as a work of art. Maybe. Nonetheless, as man is not a species of immortals, we utilise the natural world around us in order to create a world between each of us, as a species. Thus, if our central question is, can art be separated from the artist, our first propositional answer is yes. Art can be separated from the artist, as it is through the reification of a thought originally contemplated by an individual that art comes into being. From the vestiges of an artist's mind, thought becomes an object, i.e. there is creator and creation. This is our first relation, creator slash creation. This presents us with our first distinction. Art and artist is separable in that art is the creation object of artist's subject creativity. The process of reification makes concrete such a division.
Relation 2. The Intermingling of Creator and Creation Although the separability of art from the artist as creator and created holds some merit, one cannot help but feel to be left with a sour taste in one's mouth when acknowledging that there must be more to it than such a simple division. The fact remains that through contemplation and the reification, some posit of the author is left within the art, as a residue. This shall be the topic of discussion in this second section. Throughout the 20th century, many continental philosophers dedicated their time to the aesthetic discussion of experiencing art, or more broadly, the world of meaning itself. For some, such as Martin Heidegger, Hans-Georg Gadamer, and Paul Ricoeur, to name but a few, such a discourse took place through the examination of hermeneutics. Hermeneutics is a branch of philosophy concerning the art of interpretation, or as Judith Shaklar phrases it in her Squaring the Hermeneutic Circle, quote, Hermes carried the messages of the gods, and hermeneutics is the art of reading them. Thus, hermeneutics concerns the art of interpreting artworks, chiefly texts, in order to ascertain some understanding of their meaning. As a branch of philosophy, there are a number of important points to make about hermeneutics, enough to fill volumes of works on the topic. <laughs> As such, hermeneutics itself shall not be discussed here in order to spare the listener several days of time. <laughs> Nonetheless, it must be stated that, as the art of interpreting and understanding meaning, hermeneutics has concerned itself with interpreting artworks and understanding the meaning of a work of art, and how this work of art discloses itself to an interpreter. And this has been the case practically since its formal inception into philosophy with the philosopher Schleiermacher. Herein lies the first point that must be made. Art is experienced via interpretation. When one is in a gallery, at a theatre, or even watching a band play at the Royal Albert Hall, one is more than just a part of a wider audience, but rather a gaggle of interpreters, finding meaning in the art that discloses itself to you. This implies to some degree at least that to engage with an artwork is to experience its gaze interpretively. We should never forget that to stare at oil on canvas or performer on stage and so on is to have our gaze mirrored by the art we interpret. For instance, we may often stare at Picasso's Guernica, but we often forget that it screams back. None other than da Vinci's Mona, Li Mona Lisa best embodies this altogether forgotten fact of interpreting and experiencing art, that for as long as it's in our gaze, we are in its. We must experience art by surrendering the time to interpret its meaning. As interesting as this is, our concern here is the extent to which such an interpretive experience affects the separability of art and the artist. Before we can discuss this, however, it must also be remembered that to create art is itself an experience. In his magnum opus, Being in Time, Martin Heidegger tells us that the essence of art lay in a process of poeticizing life, engaged in by the artist. Amongst so many other utterances, here Heidegger tells us that as the operation of art is to poeticize life, the experience of creating art that the artist engages with is a, quote, disclosing of existence. 
the posit which exists within an artwork as the residue of the artist's creation is their own existence and experience transplanted onto a canvas, sheet of paper or a stage and comes to the fore as the shadow of the contemplative moment the artist has prior to and during reification, taking up its own existential form as the posit within the newly reified object itself. This requires some more thought. In his essay Heidegger's Later Philosophy, Hans-Georg Demmer reaffirms Heidegger's claim that the essence of art is in the poeticization of life. Here he states that, quote, Heidegger asserts that the essence of art is in the process of poeticizing. What he means is that the nature of art does not consist in transforming something that is already formed or in copying something that is already in being. Rather, art is the project by which something new comes forth as true, the essence of the event of truth that is present in the work of art is that it opens up an open place. Gadamer's explanation of Heidegger's claim is important for our investigation as he tells us that the poeticization inherent in art, as the disclosing of existence, becomes an eventual truth, opening up the space for open-ended disclosure and interpretation of the work of art itself. This is significant for us as Gadamer reveals that the space for interpretation is open through the artist's act of disclosing existence to us by creating something new making the interpretation of art indebted to the artist and as such making them inseparable. In order to discuss this, we have to return to Heidegger. In an essay entitled The Origin of the Work of Art, Heidegger fleshes out the very manner in which art is inseparable from the artist. Here he argues, quote, The artist is the origin of the work, the work is the origin of the artist, neither is without the other. End quote. Thus Heidegger shows us that the process of simply dividing the artist and the art as creator and creation is too logically causal. Rather, what he explains in the essay is the manner in which the work of art and the artist construct one another amongst other notable concerns about the connection between art, being, and truth. Although art and the artist exist as separate entities, as creation and creator, they can never be truly separated. The posit of the artist cannot wholly be extracted from the art, and the abstract notion of the art's contemplation can never really be equally wholly extracted from the artist either. In this sense, the experience of poeticizing, in order to disclose some existential meaning to an interpreter, is a constant discourse between creator and creation. One always informs the other, and vice versa. That art essentially unfolds in the artwork, going on to claim, quote, what art is should be inferable from the work. What the work of art is we can come to know only from the essence of art. Anyone can easily see that we are moving in a circle, end quote. It's through this circular motion that we cannot simply interpret art in a vacuum, sealed off from the world. The work of art and the artist are within the world alongside us, and as such the world outside of the creator-creation relationship feeds into the essence of art itself. 
In positing contemplation through its reification, art is the disclosure of existence, and as such, quote, a becoming and happening of truth, Heidegger tells us. Heidegger continues to discuss the experiential process of disclosing one's being as a truth by stating, quote, truth is the clearing and concealing of beings happens in all being composed. All art as the letting happen of the advent of the truth of beings is as such in essence poetry. The essence of art on which both the artwork and the artist depend is the setting itself into work of truth. It is due to art's poetic essence that, in the midst of beings, art breaks open, an open place in whose openness everything is other than usual. End quote. Excuse Heidegger's neologisms and my readings of them. <laughs> Essentially, although Heidegger's writing is rather complex and difficult to reduce, his central point is that art forges an open space for interpretation as a disclosure of being, and as such the disclosure of some form of truth. Quote, art is in its essence an origin, a distinctive way in which truth comes into being. End quote. Thus, truth and art and being are in a relation with one another. This connects to our question of separability because Heidegger introduces an emphasis not only on the mutual construction of the artist and the work of art, but connects them through his grasp of the essence of art, namely the pulling into being some truth by the experience of disclosing one's existence creatively. This therefore goes on to open the space for interpretation, forcing us to ask questions about the being which has been disclosed to us in the work of art itself. Thus, through Heidegger's existential grasp, we can see that the work of art and the artist are in fact inseparable, they intermingle, precisely because of their connection to what they share, i.e. the essence of art itself. Through the experience or performance or reifying contemplation, Creator and creation are intrinsically forever connected as two parts of a single whole, informing and reinforming one another in their disclosure of existence, opening the space for interpretation. Nonetheless, although this highlights the experience of forging art as the disclosure of truth and being, interpreting art is itself an experience, which, with further consideration, might adapt the extent to which work of art is or is not separable from the artist. This will be the focus of our next episode, centering itself on a new agent, the effect of the interpreter. So you've been listening to the first part of On Separating Art from the Artist. So far, we've looked at the way in which creator and creation are two distinct entities and the way in which they both intermingle with one another. Thus, the way in which they are separable and the way in which they intermingle, the way in which they construct one another. If you haven't already done so, please, please, please like, share, subscribe and follow. It would mean the world to me. <laughs> Just click on that little follow button <laughs> or the little subscribe button would mean so much to me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Also, if you haven't done so, please check out this essay. There should be a link in the description box below or to the side, above or to the left, depending on what platform you're using. <laughs> 
Go check out the essay there on the website where you can get all the references and added content that doesn't become a podcast episode. Thank you so much for listening once again, and if you haven't already done so, please check out the website. And all you have to do to remember is Think Pollitt at www.thinkpollitt.com. Thank you.